like it. Yeah. I like it. How's Don't things going? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good, despite everything that's going on. You know, it feels good to be home and healthy. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yes. It's, it, this year has certainly put into perspective uh, the things that really matter. So health is certainly one of them. Yeah. Love the office and uh, love the skate award there. Look at that. <laughs> oh, that's actually like a wrestling shoe. It's like a oh. golden wrestling shoe. So it's a, it's a, t- a trophy of types. Oh, nice. Because you, yeah, you were an Olympic wrestler? Or yeah, that's right. Canada? That's right. Yes. I was Olympian in 2016 for wrestling. Wow. Do you miss it at times? Um, you know what? I feel like politics is actually a very good substitute <laughs> for wrestling in a lot of ways. It's very similar, uh, the sport world and uh, uh, politics. So, you know, I do miss it. I'm still very involved. I sit on the board of directors of, of Wrestling Canada and I'm involved in the COC Athlete Commission, which is the Canadian Olympic Committee. So I'm not very far from sports, still very involved. Um, but I like the zebra that you have in, in the back of Thank your you. yeah. <laughs> office. Looks good. Yeah. <laughs> now, how did you get into the political arena from wrestling? That's a pretty cool journey. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, there certainly was a gap between uh, between my competitive days and, and getting into politics. But uh, yeah, I grew up in, in the sport world and spent quite a bit of time um, going to uh, being involved in sport. And um, I'm a Ward 3 resident, uh, a volunteer in the area. And as I mentioned, a board member with lots of different sporting organizations and uh, I also have a master's degree in psychology and in public policy. And that's really where my love of cities kind of started um, was in that work. Um, and my master's thesis specifically looked at how um, Albertan municipalities are regulating certain tech platforms and how that can affect the revenue that they can generate. And I've been following City Hall for a very long time now, always with great interest. I think a lot of people focus on provincial and federal politics uh, tends to take up all the oxygen in the room. But what happens at the city level is very interesting, has a huge effect on our lives. And it's just a space that I always knew that I'd want to be involved in. Oh, absolutely. Have you found that this time around it's going to be a tough run despite you know so much that's going on in our world you know I think politics is always an interesting space and I do think that this is a crossroads for Calgary I think this is a very important election because we do have at least seven seats turning over on council which is something that you don't see very often a lot of incumbents will run over and over and over again so the fact that half of council will be new I think presents a real opportunity for citizens and for Calgary I also think we're at unprecedented times with the pandemic, with the economic downturn, with the, you know, building the type of future that we want to see in this city. So I think uh, it's going to be difficult. The race, I'm in an open race, which means there's no incumbent. So there's going to be a lot of uh, candidates who get in the race, um, more so than when there's an incumbent. Um, There just tends to, it tends to draw more um, candidates in, but I think that's a good thing for democracy. It gives people an opportunity to really engage about city politics and city issues. And anytime someone wants to do that, I'm game. So you're ready to to bring in the sharpshooter, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I have a real passion for, for the issues and, and I think that I can bring a different perspective to council. And so, yeah, I'm ready for the race. So, I mean, you know, we get into this, there's a lot of challenges around, mental health and addiction. How do you see yourself helping this cause that's going on? Because it leads into the category of homelessness. And, you know, we spend 85% uh, of the budget 
on 6% of the homeless population, yet we're still seeing about 1,600 or so individuals, Calgarians that are homeless, consistently out there year after year. How do you kind of tackle that? Yeah, homelessness is a, a big issue. It's, it's, it's very challenging. And I think that it's something that actually needs to get addressed both by the city, but also nonprofit partners. It's something that mm-hmm. is with buy-in from the provincial government. And there are so many factors that actually lead more into homelessness that the city can have a big impact in beyond just like the budgeting that you do give for things like affordable housing, which are really important. Um, but there's solid research showing that, you know, the regulatory environment around housing, which is something that the city has a lot of control over, does affect homelessness. And so making sure that, um, you know, people can get into affordable housing, and that's something the city has a lot of control over, over how difficult is the regulatory environment. Um, that's something we, we need to be paying attention to. 100%. I think also addictions and mental health um, resources and support is something that we have to invest in as well. And all of this is exacerbated by the downturn in the economy, right? So when people don't have opportunities um, and jobs, it's a lot harder um, to like these, these issues get exacerbated essentially. And so one of the big things that I have always been a proponent of is this idea of a social safety net. And it's something that in Canada, we have a social safety net for the this exact time for when the economy gets bad. Um, we have the social safety net that's there to be able to catch people and provide supports. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in favor of getting rid of the social safety net in, in difficult economic times, because it really does beg the question of why we would bother investing in it at all. And so, um, you know, I think in these difficult budgetary times and with the pandemic, people are always looking for something to cut. And I don't think it can be the supports for marginalized people. I don't think it can be the supports um, that are meant for people who are most vulnerable in our society. I was going to ask you about affordability of inner city densification versus suburban growth. Man, you're bringing up one of the probably most hot topics in and dynamics of city council, which is this inner versus outer city divide. So there's lots of divides you'll see on council, right? The more progressive versus the more conservative folks. Um, but the inner outer city tension is one that I think is probably the most interesting. And it's one of the most politicized as well, right? So is it growth or is it sprawl? <laughs> That's the question. Um, and depending on who you talk to, you'll sort of get different answers. And I think what I will say is that uh, as a city, we have to look at densifying. We can't, uh, you know, obviously just always continue to grow. Um, And especially for some of our higher level strategic reasons of like climate resilience and making sure that we're building a city that's ultimately sustainable, not just in terms of our climate targets, but also in terms of just financing our city. That's something we have to be mindful of. But I think one of the things that people don't always realize about outer city or outer perimeter wards is that a lot of the development that needs to happen in this area will only happen with growth. And so there are very specific challenges with orphan pathways in Ward 3. Um, People who live in Hidden Valley, they can only turn out of Hidden Valley this one specific way. And a lot of those business cases uh, are packaged in with with growth. Um, So when we get more growth in the area and we build more development, um, we will be able to remedy all these. So I think it's gonna take a little bit of a rethink of how we prioritize spending within the city. And I think the other thing is counselors have to go into the job, not just with this understanding of like, I'm representing Ward 3 and that's all I care about. You have to care about the city more broadly. And I think you have to be able to 
go to other wards and really understand the dynamics of what is going on there so that we can adequately assign our resources and be more fair to each other. Because if, you know, a ward seven or ward eight counselor is going to have way different dynamics um, and challenges than someone who's on the perimeter of the city, like ward three or ward two or ward five. Um, and I think if we did a better job of actually understanding, like, what are the challenges? What are the, you know, incentives that are going on here that we could potentially work towards better solutions. And one of the reasons I decided to run is I do think there's so much polarization of issues across City Hall right now. And I don't think there's enough empathy and understanding of the fact that we all are facing somewhat different competing priorities. And we have to find a balance of that. And to, to give you an example, I mean, Calgary has a word system where you represent different locations within the city, but other municipalities elect their officials differently. So they will have like a list of 40 or 50 people, whoever many you wanna run. And then, um, you know, you vote for the top eight or the top 10 or top 15 that you want on council. And that's a very different dynamic because now you're you're elected to look at the whole city. And I mean, the, the, the drawback of that is that maybe you don't have as much local representation, but I think the positive aspect of that is that every council is counselor is responsible for really understanding all of the different projects and all of the different constraints that do exist in the city. And so I think it allows people to make somewhat more holistic decision-making um, that's not just an us versus them mentality. What is your thoughts on the cost of upgrading sewer pipes and systems for your community? Yeah, see, this is also another area where like growth really matters. And some of the things like offsite levy bylaw um, needs to get looked at because the city does front a lot of the costs of different infrastructure that um, developers will be putting in and developers also pay for some of that as well. And so I think really looking at that structure and making sure that we can financially afford to do it. I mean, coming back and everything is connected, coming back to your earlier question about homelessness, right? Is making sure that people can get into affordable housing um, at like market-based affordable housing is um, not like affordable housing programming. But um, a lot of that, the reason why, um, you know, the city has continued to sprawl is that's partially also what makes housing affordable in Calgary. Right. So um, compare that to Vancouver or Toronto, where they have like a lot more restraints on where they can grow. Um, that does jack up the price of living. Right. So young people get totally costed out of the market. Um, it, it puts up like an upward uh, strain on, on prices, which then um, does trickle down to have additional social effects on things like homelessness. And so there's no easy answer to these things. Mm -hmm. I think we all know that we can't sprawl indefinitely. We need to densify the city, but densification is also a very tricky subject as well, because I'm sure you've been watching the news around a bunch of different topics um, related to development within the inner city um, and where you put that development, you know, and, and how that process and engagement goes with citizens is often very controversial. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that gets stoked as well by counselors either being you know, appealing to the people who are most resistant about change or appealing to folks who, you know, are most hopeful and optimistic about what the future of Calgary can look like. What are your thoughts on the issue surrounding defunding the police? That's a great question. I mean, what does defund the police mean? That's a really good question because it means a little bit different to everyone. But I've been watching this particular topic over the last year and, uh, seeing how the city of Calgary has has dealt with it since the anti-racism hearings, um, seeing the leadership that I think has come from uh, the 
Chief Constable Mark Neufeld of, of the Calgary Police. And I think, you know, we do need to think about uh, providing more supports for wraparound services, for things like the PAC team um, and interdisciplinary teams to help with the prevention, for, with, to help with mental health, uh, to help with crime reduction. Uh, the city of Calgary so always had a community policing model, but I think thinking about what that is going to look like in the future and how that's different than the past is absolutely something that we need to do. Um, it gets so polarized as to either, you know, you're, you back the blue or you, you back the BIPOC community. And I think that that is an oversimplification of the issue. The truth is that we have to bring everyone together as a community to try and figure out how we're gonna move this forward. And that means that everyone's gonna have to be at the table. That means police, that means the city, that means the community. Um, we're also gonna need, you know, buy-in from other levels of government, I think, in order to provide the right types of services to ensure that we are providing the best that we can for our citizens. Um, it's tough right now with, with the economic downturn. I don't know if people have a huge appetite to rethink how we do a lot of the systems that we have in the city, but I, I, that's why I am optimistic about the future of Calgary, because I think we, with the right people around the table, thinking about what can we do to make things better, that isn't just the politicization of the issue, um, but is actually thinking about solutions is, is what we need. Jasmine, how come city council can never come up with an agreement or a decision and stick with it? It takes weeks or months or years, and then they'll backtrack. How come we can't stick with decision-making skills? So I don't know if I entirely ag agree with that, that, that council can't make decisions or, or doesn't make decisions. I think what you are picking up on, though, is that there are incredible structural constraints within cities. Um, that do tend to slow down a lot of the processes. So, you know, if you watch council on a regular, I mean, it's not like councils split oftentimes like right down the middle. It's, it's very often like this 10-3 split or, you know, that's with a couple councillors missing. That, that was and that's what we hear, right? On yeah. The <laughs> yeah. So you'll hear about that, um, you know, or like 12-3, that kind of thing. Um, so I don't actually think council is nearly as divided as everyone thinks that council is. Um, so I would say that first and foremost. But I think the second thing is the city of Calgary moves at the speed of government. And that is something that is a complaint from, from everyone. And I think that that's true of, of, that's a fair criticism of provincial and federal go level governments as well, is that we often move very slowly. And, and the problems that Calgary faces are so dynamic, right? If you think of how quickly the private sector, especially in oil and gas, some of these big companies moved out of Calgary, um, you know, they just respond to the market very, very quickly and they, they move on. Um, what's challenging about operating a city is that we don't have necessarily prices the same way to inform decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes council does miss the mark on what citizens actually value um, because they don't have the same pricing mechanisms to give them those same clues. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes you do see, and you, you've seen this at the provincial government level too, that they'll take a stance on something and then they kind of get all this negative feedback, like, no, don't do that. And then they will walk things back. Um, and unfortunately, that is a bit of a challenge. I think the other thing that cities really face is just the structural constraints of the, the MGA, the Municipal Government Act, which is written by the province. And so there are things that I think sometimes people who come in with a business background into city politics are like, oh, we'll just run the city like a business. 
And because you don't have prices the same way, you actually can't run it like the private sector does because the private sector has a product. They can either raise the, the price of that product or lower that price of that product and people respond accordingly. The cities only sort of pseudo have that through property taxes. And it's very difficult because I don't think people always understand what their property taxes go through. So there's this huge information asymmetry that happens between the public and city hall. Right. And I think the biggest thing we need to do as counselors and and people who are involved in with the city is do a better job of educating folks on what it is that your money is getting you and what it's not getting you. You know, even yesterday, the downtown revitalization plan came out. It's $200 million that's being spent. So we know the cost of doing something, but what's the cost of not doing something? And I think that those types of information are not often given to the public. And I don't think that that's right. I think that makes it difficult for the public to hold council to account. Um, and counselors almost always seem to have more information uh, than the public. And that is a challenge. You shouldn't have to be able to run for city council to understand what's going on in our city. And so I think we have a lot of work to do around communication. Um, but I, I'm not running for this city council because I hate this city and think there's a million things wrong with it. In fact, I'm running because I believe in this city and I think there's huge potential. And yes, there are things we need to fix, but there is so much more good than there is bad. And I don't think that's a common you know, thread that you're going to hear from candidates because people are pretty negative a lot of times when they run. But the truth is, is that this city has so much to be optimistic about. That's why I came to Calgary, you know, a decade ago was because of the opportunity and because of the people that are here, very solution oriented. Um, we're in tough times right now. You know, we're in the, the third period of the hockey game down by two and we need to figure something out. And that's why I think who we elect and, and the attitude that they have and the willingness to approach problems, not from this deficit mindset, not from this scarcity mindset, but of like, how can we actually get results for people is important. Jasmine, do you believe in the increase of property taxes and business taxes? So the property tax system in Calgary is a very difficult uh, situation right now. Um, and some of this is structural and some of this is inaction on the part of city council. So I'll try and break it down by those two those two categories. So the structural element is that we did build a city and this is, you know, this is on every previous council. This is sort of on every private sector partner. This is on all of us. We built a city that really relied on our downtown core that had a very strong corporate sector. And uh, we were able to rely on them to pay a big portion of the property tax base um, that gave us great services for a very low price. And then the global collapse in oil prices uh, changed all of that. And a lot of these companies left, they respond to the market, right? They, they leave really quick. Um, they know that there's no money to be made here and a lot of them left. And what that did is um, it made it so that a lot of the small businesses that were here in the city had to pick up the property tax tab for the non-residential sector. And the residential sector has, you know, received some small increases, but largely has re remained untouched. Um, and I think the challenge is that city council was warned about this long before um, it became an issue. So asset owners in Calgary, who are also asset owners in other cities, sort of pointed out, hey, you know, this is going to be a big problem for the city like this. You, you, we probably have built something that is unsustainable here. We need to fix it. And I think when times are good, you know, we've seen this at all levels of government. Um, people don't make the changes that they need to make. And then when times are bad, it's very desperate. And so in the non-residential sector specifically, um, the property tax 
uh, prices that people are paying are unsustainable. And especially with the pandemic, uh, you know, people have no form of income and then property taxes have been really high. And the council has tried to uh, use the PTP, the face tax program to provide one-time relief to the non-residential sector. The problem with this is that uh, they've created like a situation that's, you might've heard of this bow wave. Um, and what that means is that essentially if you don't, uh, collect property taxes um, at the rate that you're supposed to for a year or even two years, um, once you finally do collect at the appropriate rate, it'll be an even bigger um, uh, price uh, jump that people will have to pay. And I think the hope of, of council has been um, that the post-pandemic recovery will be so great and so strong that that's something the non-residential sector will be able to bear. And that's not the truth. Um, we need to have reform on, on the property taxes. It's not gonna be popular. I think that uh, quite frankly, this current council that is coming in has been sort of set up to be in a very, very difficult situation, no matter who's elected, whether you elect me or you elect someone else, um, that is the truth. So. Uh, we also see a business owners running for city council in record numbers, I think, this time around because they are frustrated with the fact that council hasn't, you know, addressed some of this stuff in a, a truly structural fix. And so they're coming in to do it. And so my priority is to just be very mindful as a ward that, you know, is predominantly residential is that we do our best to protect the affordability of, of housing in this area and of the, the livelihoods of people in this area because businesses, of course, have really struggled, but so have, you know, who, who works in businesses? People. Um, and those people have really struggled as well. And so I don't promise people property tax cuts. I, I don't think that that's sustainable. I think anyone who's telling you that they're going to cut your property taxes, you have to ask them some very tough questions about what it is that they're going to cut, because it's going to be firefighting. It's going to be policing. It's going to be affordable housing. Um, it's going to be a lot of things. It's going to be people's jobs. And the city is the second largest employer in the city. And so um, just being very mindful of, of what it means when someone says that they're going to cut your property taxes, I think is important. But I think we need to hold the line. I think we need stability. I think that's what everyone has been asking for from the government in these uncertain times. Mm -hmm. Calgary is built on the backs of small business and entrepreneurs. They're the ones struggling the most, I would say, to be honest. You know, being elected into government, we feel as Calgarians that a lot of the decisions are made by you guys, but you guys have a job. You guys have a safety net. When you take away and shut down businesses, you now start affecting the livelihoods of moms and dads and hardworking Calgarians. How do we find a balance here? Or what is the, and there's two extremes, and I'm with you on this, Jasmine. There's like, you know, the safety of, and health of people. And then there's this financial crisis going on. It's like, where do you start? It's a great question and you're absolutely right. It is the small business owners, it is everyday citizens that contribute uh, to keep our city going. And so I think the there's two things I'll say. First and foremost, you need to vote. I think that that is the biggest power that you have as a citizen. And like I said, this is a historic election. So do your research and find a candidate that you think is going to reflect your values. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I think the colossal failure that we see across the entire Canadian landscape is the inability of cities and provinces and the federal government to work together. So if you watch the provincial government, they will you know, take every opportunity to take shots at the federal government and how they are not um, you know, 
doing the right things to support the province. Um, but then you turn around and look at the city and the city does the same thing with the province, right? They say, you know, you're not giving us the right supports that we need to be it's able to- It's a blaming do. game. It's a Absolutely. blaming game, but guess who suffers? Calgarians, if we're looking at our city. Exactly. So how do, is, how do we get ahead from this? Exactly. I think it, it always does trickle down to affect the average person. And so I think what I would say is that we need governments that are ultimately collaborative. We need to remember, and this is one of my founding principles of why I'm running, is that there's only one taxpayer, right? Like it doesn't matter whether you're paying provincial taxes, federal taxes, municipal property taxes. It's all like the same group of people that, that fund our society. It's you, it's me, it's our neighbors. And so the infighting that sort of happens that sort of we're going to blame the provincial government for this, or we're going to blame the federal government for this is actually not really productive because I don't really care if I have to pay through this through my federal taxes or my property taxes, I just need to get the right value. And I think because of political differences, you see people being unable to unable to work with others. Um, and so what I look for in an elected official is do they spend all their time, you know, ragging on the provincial or federal government? If they do, that that might feel good. You might agree with them even. They might even be right. But if they if they do uh, spend all their time blaming other levels of government for the problems of cities, then they're not going to be able to effectively advocate for your needs once they're elected. Because politicians are people too. They by and large work with people that are, they find reasonable. And so this is one of the biggest challenges. I mean, for myself personally, I've never tweeted the words UCP or NDP in my life. And that takes great discipline. But the reason I do this is because I think if you want to, if you want to make politics your profession, you cannot make it your hobby. And too often we see politicians just treating this like it's just a complete free for all. I'm going to say things without repercussions. I'm going to blame whoever I want as long as it takes the heat off of me. And, I, and there are some legitimate complaints that I think that politicians have against other levels and the fact that you can't work together. But I don't want to be in the situation where I get elected as Ward 3 City Councillor and I'm working on the transit file and I need to have a good discussion with the transit minister. And I can't do that because the 15,000 tweets that people have, you know, that I have done, which I haven't, but I'm just saying if you're that type of candidate, you're going to really actually struggle to advocate. And so much of politics is your ability to whip votes, is your ability to work with people in the background. I mean, think of your your job or anyone's job, you you would never try and get a job by like trashing the current leadership or by like saying that, you know, you know, I can't, I'll do it so much better than you because you need that. Like coming back to what I said earlier, cities have to work so closely with the provincial government that if you're spending all your time campaigning against them and then you get an office and you expect to be able to get things done, like I wish that you could get things done. I wish that you could still do that. But the hard truth of the matter is like, I think that that's why we see um, so much stalling on a lot of the projects that we do see is because uh, of an inability for people to get along. And I think that as the public, it's very frustrating because if any of us did that in our job, we would get fired, right? There's lots of people we work with that we don't like, <laughs> but you have to get the job done and you have to be professional. But you go on Twitter on any given day, um, you can see politicians just absolutely thrashing each other. And it's not okay. It also dissuades reasonable people from running for politics. But it takes away from their credibility and reputation. You know, How are you perceived? Absolutely. So I think that public perception and being able to work together with people is so important. They say politics is a blood sport. Is there a way to work together and be kind and not tear each other's walls down to, you know, get ahead? 
I think there absolutely is. And I think we should be paying more attention to which candidates we think can can work with others. I think the problem is in politics is, is what kind of gets rewarded. You get rewarded for the hot takes. You kind of get rewarded for being edgy and speaking out. Like that's what gets the headline. If you actually go and read the last, you know, however many Calgary Herald articles or CBC articles about the city, like look at what the headline is. And it's almost always the most divisive thing. Um, and it gets attention. I think the other thing is we tend to reward politicians who are more, you know, <laughs> masculine and uh, domineering like that, that personality of what we think is a leader um, is deeply entrenched in our society. That's not something that's easy to undo. And so, you know, who do we think about when we think about a leader of our city? Do you think about an educator? Do you think about, um, you know, a parent? Do you think about a woman? Do you think about a person of color? Like, I think that that is one of the biggest challenges that we do face in our society is that we tend to sort of always elect people of even the same personality type because politics sort of demands that um, and attracts that same personality type. So the biggest thing I would say is like, if you see someone that's running and they seem somewhat different, they're bringing something uh, unique to the table. That's actually one of the best ways to change the system is to elect different types of people. Do you get questions about people saying, Jasmine, you're too young to run. Have you got that yet? I haven't really heard that. I think the biggest thing that we have to remember is that if we're building the next generation of Calgary, we need the next generation of leaders. And uh, so we talk so much about engaging youth and making sure that we don't have young people leaving our city and going elsewhere for opportunities. And if we're serious about making sure that that doesn't happen, we can't continue to elect people who are in their sixties, you know, 100%. exclusively, you know, you have to have young qualified people. And I mean, my background is specifically in public policy for municipalities. I have the work ethic. I have the volunteer experience, the community experience. Um, and so, you know, I'm not running, you know, just on my age, um, but don't count me out despite my age, because I think that, uh, that's something that our city actually needs. It is unique. It is different. Um, so that's my perspective on that. I appreciate that. No, it's huge because I've got that before where they're like, oh, well, you're, you're a little young to do this. You, know, you should leave it for the older guys to do it. I'm like, no. And that's why I never went to the city of Calgary and said, hey, I'm going to start doing this because hey, it's so much red tape and so slow. I just said, you know what? I'm going to create this name. I'm going to use it and I'm going to add it to what I do. And what a great platform. Now I got you on this. And it's fun, right? It's different. It's with today's era, today's time. Absolutely. And the I city hadn't jumped on it yet. That is a, a perfect example of what I do think that that younger spirit brings is just sort of this, let's do it. Like, I'm not going to look for excuses of why we can't do it. I'm not going to listen to the bureau bureaucratic uh, red tape of, of why this can't work. I'm just going to go and do it. And I think that, you know, the younger generation of Calgary does have a different perspective. I think I'm really excited about this next generation of leaders because you know what it's like to grow up with technology. You're not afraid of that, but you also still had to be home before the, you know, the street lights went on when you were playing hockey outside. So you have these like intergenerational sort of values as, as a millennial that I think allows you to actually be a very dynamic leader. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that, you know, us creating this platform and having these conversations, it's so different. It's not the norm. Usually you'd be talking to the media and, and now we've kind of, well, like myself, an everyday Calgarian, you've kind of brought the conversation open and you've become transparent. What do you think about this new shift in the digital virtual world? 
we need that everyday Calgarians having everyday conversations. And I think it's more important now than ever because of the way that media works. So what's going to get the clicks is the most sensationalized version of the truth. Um, it's going to be the things that people say on Twitter that are just the hot take, but missing all the nuance and context. And unfortunately, you know, mainstream media, a lot of times is responds to incentives just as we all do and they need to make money it's a very difficult um, environment for media and so I think that they you know try their best but there is this incentive to to write these more sensationalized pieces because they get the they get the clicks but that has the terrible impact of spreading I think misinformation amongst the public and municipal politics is already a very low information environment right you go to the doors and not everyone if people are listening to this podcast there so if you are one of those folks who's tuning in right now you represent some of the most engaged Calgarians because the average person is just trying to live their life like they're trying to make ends meet they're taking care of their kids and their parents and they might not have time to tune into these types of things but for the folks who do want to tune in I think it's so refreshing to not just have to read a typical news article, but to be able to have a real conversation with real people. Absolutely. What do you think about our city's art? <laughs> so this is a great question. I know that public art it tends to be a dog whistle. So do, you know, bike lanes. There are certain issues in the city that people just love to hate. My perspective is that I I, you know, and this is sort of comes back to some of an athlete mentality is that I don't think that you can go at the future of this city with this scarcity mindset that there's not enough for everyone in this city. You think about a great city like New York, there's space for arts, there's space for, you know, the, the sports arenas, there's space for great transit. And I think Calgary has to have that perspective about the future too. I think we can always argue and debate over what's the right prioritization of capital projects. Because, you know, we just have arts expansion coming, we have the arena or event center, then you have Green Line, and everyone sort of has a project that they would more prefer got done first. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm no different. But, you know, some of those are normative uh, decisions. Some of them are based in evidence and outcomes. Um, for me, for example, like, I would have really prioritized the Green Line um, over some of the other capital projects. And, and the reason for that comes down to my fundamental view of what is the point of local government. We have local government and not just rely on the private sector because there are certain mm -hmm. things that our citizens need that the private sector either will never provide or we don't want them to provide. So transit is a good example of something that's not profitable enough that you see private companies just coming in and building transit systems. They tend not to do that. Um, but transit's very impactful for the people who live here. It's going to be 20,000 jobs with the green line. It's going to be you know, 65,000 uh, people riding it on opening day. So is it 20,000 actual jobs or that 2,000 jobs and 20,000 man hours or whatever they call it, heads? Yeah, I've heard that it's 20,000 That's jobs. But it, the, the point is, I think that it's infrastructure spending and stimulus in Calgary that we need right now. Um, and if you actually look in through Calgary's history and, and look at the recessions that we've had, that's actually generally when we've got some of the best capital projects. That's when we've gotten the other legs of, of the LRT. It's when we got the Saddle Dome. And so people will sort of quibble over whether or not we should do this capital spending now. My response is that I think that we should, because if you look at, you know, what, what governments generally do when you have an economic recession is they stimulus spend. Should we have stimulus spent on all the capital projects? I mean, that is up for debate hundred percent. And I would have prioritized the green line because getting back to my earlier point is just, uh, you know, 
that's something that I think local government really first and foremost should provide. You know, the other things that you might not want private sector involved in are things like policing, or they might not ever do firefighting. That's why we have local government is to fill some of those gaps of the private sector. Some of the other capital projects, the, the private sector may invest in if there's a market there, um, or they may not, and you may, may need partnership with public. But I do think that, you know, investing in Calgary and making sure some of these projects do get done is important. And I don't like to cherry pick projects, you know, I mean, as much as I have a preference for green line, I also see the value in some of the other projects. And so that's why I'm never going to speak up and say, you know, I don't believe in public art or I don't believe in well, the arts common extension. Go back to the art part. I'm not saying just public art in general. I'm thinking like the blue ring or peace bridge, for example, or, you know, off Stony Trail and 16th, there's some iron sticking out, wrought irons, and none of them were locally made. They're not Canadian made. How does this make logical sense from decision makers from the city council to say, hey, yeah, we want this. Yeah, you want to look great uh, globally and all that, but you're not even helping your own backyard. If you don't put on the all, own, your own oxygen mask, you can't take care of anybody else. You know, if you spend money here, it stays here. Most oftentimes, I don't know where the logic is to spend the money and get a company from Germany. And, and it wasn't cheaper. So say the blue ring, it's already been repainted it once again, blue. So it's not quality. The other thing is this, Alberta's got the best tradesmen, welders, pipe fitters. You don't think we could have made a blue ring if we really wanted that? I absolutely agree with you on that. But to put it in context, the Blue Ring was built in 2013. And since then we have done like a ton of, of looking at arts programming and to see how we can do this better. Because I think the biggest mistake that council made at the time was you know, deciding on, on pro these these projects and not having that local um, enough of a local influence, like you're saying. Since then, um, as of 2017, the arts funding was was paused and the whole program was revitalized. And so now it's done by an external organization to prioritize how we're going to spend arts funding and making sure that it does have exactly some of the things that you're you're raising. Because I think you're right to be frustrated about it. That was a big conversation in the 2017 mm -hmm. election as well. Um, but I think that I think that that frustration from citizens has in some ways been addressed and um, implemented. Okay, so how about this, Jasmine? If it's been addressed, how come local artists and murals and whatnot are not getting paid $483,000 or whatever U.S. they're getting paid? They get maybe $1,000, $2,000 for a mural? So I think that, again, like that is going to be something that is addressed because I don't think it's something that council should be able to decide. Like what is the going rate for a local artist? Like that's something that needs to be informed by the arts community, by the standards that are set there. Um, I do think you're absolutely right that we don't do enough to partner with our local, like especially music scene, like that's another area that I think that the city shouldn't necessarily be meddling, but can better incentivize uh, partnerships. So for example, if you, you know, if you provide some kind of uh, benefits uh, to businesses, but you do it on a contingent that they have to have local artists like play there, like that type of solution and thinking and incentivizing from the public sector, I think is important. I, what I don't believe we should be doing is seeing our role as designers of exactly what the city should be doing and being so prescriptive about it. Like I see us more um, 
and certainly the type of candidate I will be is, is as a gardener, like let's make this situation in Calgary, the soil in Calgary, so to speak, um, as fertile as possible, and then allow things to grow in a, in a more organic way, um, in a way that is more community focused and oriented. But there is a huge mural as well in, in, uh, in Ward 3 um, that uh, the local uh, advocates and, and community association have been working really hard on. And so I think there's a ton of space for improvement within public art, but I also don't really agree with the way that I think public art has been politicized. What is your thoughts on the city strategy and its guide? And do you believe we should wait till the new city council is elected to decide on this, what the city guide is? Are you talking about the guidebook for great communities? Guidebook, yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good question. I think there's so many plans that the city has, right? So you think about Imagine Calgary, you think of a climate resilience strategy, you think of a guidebook for great communities, municipal development plan. There are there's so many different plans that uh, the city has. And I think one of the big challenges that I have seen with the guidebook is that we absolutely need to bridge between the municipal development plan and local area plans. Like, I don't think people are not, you know, aren't okay with, with some of the plans. I think the challenge is, that the city has sort of a trust us mentality sometimes. And I don't think that the public trusts the city with land use planning um, and consultation. So the city I think does public consultation, but the perception from citizens is that it's sort of checking a box. Like, do you actually care what we think? And the truth is, if you look in all this, the sort of strategic level plans that I just mentioned, the direction that the city is heading is very clear. And, and so, the land use planning to fall in place with that um, and the details of that and getting that sorted out is something that I think on the day to day really is we need to address because there's a lot of frustration around the way that development happens. And um, it's a little bit different, obviously, in the inner city than it is in Ward 3. Um, but we do need to have better citizen engagement. I don't think we can just have a just trust us attitude. I think people do bring very valuable amendments. I tuned into the entire guidebook of great communities um, that, uh, you know, the zone A, zone B issue. I don't know how closely you followed it, but um, I think people have really legitimate concerns and feedback that that council needs to incorporate. But does that mean that we can't have guidebook for great communities? No, it just needs further um, amendments and, and engagement with, with people. So. Thank you, Jasmine. Now, just to end off here, how many of you guys are there in Ward 3? There's... I believe right now there's Four? six. Six? Yeah. yeah, I think six or seven. Yeah. When you look at your other candidates, why do you believe your area should choose you over them? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm going to focus on the value that I bring. I think one of the most toxic things that we see in politics is, is sort of like, oh, don't vote for them because, you know, and tearing other people down. That's not the type of politician that I will ever be. What I will say to folks is that I think that first and foremost, the we need a, a people person to be able to be the person for Ward 3 because so much of your job as a counselor is meeting with folks and understanding the issues. So I bring that to the table. The second thing is a true understanding of policy and of governance because it's people will tell you, oh, you just need this corporate skill set. And look, I have corporate experience, but that's not enough. Like you have to genuinely understand the true legislative constraints that exist for cities in order to be able to advocate and get things done through the channels that are so prescriptive and difficult to navigate. So I think the policy background that I have, specifically in municipal policy, is a real asset. And then I think 
it, it should also matter who the person is. And I think I have a proven track record of being successful. Um, you know, I'm an Olympian. I know what it's like to dream big, but focus small. And I will absolutely do that for award three. So is there anything that you'd leave as a message to Calgarians you want to say something as why your award should choose you or. I think what I would say to the residents of Ward 3 is that I want to hear from you. I know that it's very difficult right now with COVID-19. We don't have as many opportunities to interact, but um, please reach out to me if you want to discuss any issues. I will be at your door once it's finally safe to uh, door knock, and uh, I'm going to be out in public spaces uh, in case people want to just come up and chat, but I don't feel comfortable being at uh, people's door right now. I think home is sort of a sacred place um, that you should be able to feel safe, and given where COVID is at, I, I won't be there, um, but I will be around all, all summer coming to talk to you to hear what matters to you, and I'm also available. You can find me on Twitter on Facebook, on my website, which is jasmine number four, word number three, um, dot ca. So looking forward to chatting. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Jasmine. Yeah, thank you.